The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of magicians of Egypt and its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servant and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one could have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. 
Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Joseph, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephaneth Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until it ceased, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was, was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 57 verses. Thank you, Rose, for reading that. Uh, Real quick, before we jump in, I want to do a couple announcements. We do have a visitor forum um, right after this service, so it's going to be right next door in the cottage. If you want to find out more about Sacred City, maybe you've been visiting for a few weeks, you want to ask me a few questions, there will be a light lunch provided, and we will be there right after the service. Uh, Second, authentic manhood. We are on our last week, so men, don't forget, uh, be there this Thursday at 6 a.m., Uh, July 28th, everybody say July 28th, 
Okay, we have a church picnic right after our service, right after our gathering. We're going to meet at Jungie Park, um, just like we did for the missional communities of, about a month ago. Um, we are going to be providing burgers and hot dogs. And um, you guys are bringing aside. Just check the city for all the details. But I wanted to remind you of that. Great opportunity to bring out friends, bring out family. Um, hopefully we'll have a lot better weather than the last time. And uh, we'll get to play some volleyball, some yard games, all that stuff. And then lastly, um, this week or last week, we put up church membership. So we have that on the city. Please, if you call Sacred City your home, I know we've got a lot of people on vacation this week and a lot of people are out of town. But if you're here and you call Sacred City your home, begin this church membership process on the city. Start it. There's got some reading. It's got some um, stuff you've got to fill out. And then the first three Sundays in the month of August, um, from 3 to 5 in the afternoon, we'll be meeting at our offices. And we're going to be going through the, the church membership class. So please put that in your schedule. If you just want to find out more about Sacred City, please do that. Again, church membership, it's vital. It's important to the health um, of our church. So if you call this place your home, please take the next step and um, become members of Sacred City. So uh, that's about it for me this morning for announcements. We're going to jump in. Let me go ahead and pray and let's get started. Uh, gracious God, we are humbled that you've called us uh, to be your people, that you've brought us together from across the cities and across the states this morning uh, to gather under your name and to worship um, for your glory and for our joy. And Father, I ask this morning um, with a great awareness of my own sin and of my own failures and my own frailty, I ask that you would lead us and guide us, uh, that you would speak through me, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. Father, 57 verses, it's really difficult to cover that much. Um, I thank you that you gave me three hours to do it. In. And uh, I pray today that you would anoint my voice, that you'd anoint our ears to hear and that your spirit would speak loud and clear to each and one of, every one of your children in this room. In Jesus' name, we say, amen. Well, I might be one of the only guys to um, ever preach through Genesis in the first year of planning a church. This long of a book is probably not wise uh, when you're trying to shape a church's DNA and keep the vision constantly in front of people. Um, you know, when you're talking about like not marrying multiple wives, when you should be talking about moving the vision, vision forward and the mission forward, it's not that practical. Um, but thanks for showing up each week. Thanks for showing up each week hungry. Thanks for bringing friends and family and coming expectant, uh, li- ready to hear the word of God and wanting to listen. It's a blessing. It really is a blessing to be your pastor. And there's no ho- higher calling for me than to study this Bible and to preach to you each and every week. I've been... Um, just really blessed by my time in the book of Genesis. I've been blessed by the studying and preaching of this book. Um, I've been overjoyed at just the God of this book. I used to think the God of Genesis was kind of like a God of fairy tales, but I've been thrilled to see um, the reality and just the, the real life examples and the gospel, how it plays out and how Jesus has showed up in the book of Genesis. And I can hardly believe that now today we start the last 10 chapters of the book of Genesis. We've been in this gen- we've been in Genesis for almost a year. Um, I hope and it's my hope and prayer that God's word has really come alive for you during this season and you've learned and experienced much of the gospel during our time in this first book of the Bible. So today we're going to open up Genesis chapter 1 or Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 41. We're going to go through this again 57 verses. It's long. Uh, We're going to spend some time here. Hey, we've got stuff to do, I know, but we're going to sit down in this word and we're going to go through it verse by verse for the most part and enjoy our time together. So 
today, open up your Bibles, Genesis chapter 41. If you have a, a smartphone, you can download the Sacred City app. We've got a free Bible in there. Maybe you can download version. All of our liturgies on version as well. Just search Sacred City and we're going to go. So let's just jump in. Can we do that? Okay, let's go. Genesis 41. After two whole years. Okay, stop right there. After two whole years. If you remember from last week, Joseph had been betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery. He had been in slavery now for 11 years. He um, was serving Potiphar. Okay. Kind of like the second in command of, of Pharaoh's house and Pharaoh's stuff in the kingdom of Egypt. And he was accused of rape. He didn't, his, uh, Potiphar's wife was seducing him week after week. And he said, no, no, no. But she got mad about it and, and, and said that he tried to rape her. He gets thrown into prison, thrown into the dungeon. And he's been there, um, well, in slavery and in prison for 11 years. And now it just says after two more years. So we noticed that last week we found um, God sent two guys that got in trouble with, with Potiphar or with Pharaoh. He sent him to the, the dungeons. Joseph interpreted both of their dreams, if you remember this. And he said, hey guys, here's the only one thing I ask. When you go back to Pharaoh, like one guy was going to get exalted, one guy was going to get his head cut off, right? And impaled on a stick. That was kind of cool. Once that happens... And you see that this dream comes true. Here's my one thing, bro. Don't forget your boy, Joseph, right? God gave me this gift to interpret dreams. God is the one who interprets dreams. Don't forget your boy when you go back to, when you go back to Pharaoh and let him know that I'm down here unjustly and that I can interpret dreams. Well, what happens? The guy gets exalted and what happens? Totally forgets about Joseph. And now chapter 41 just jumps right in the back of that and says, after two more years. So now we have Joseph unjustly in prison, sold into slavery, in the dungeon, betrayed by God. What he's, you know, what most people would think he's not, but betrayed by those closest to him to add insult to injury. He's there two more years after he gets his window of opportunity where he might be able to get out. He gets stuck in the slammer for two more years. All right. And now the whole story of Joseph is about to turn today. And for many of you who feel like you've been in this season, you've been in the season of struggle, you've been in the season of, of, um, suffering. I'm praying that today would be the day that your season turns, that redemption is accomplished in your life. So here we go. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Now listen, the Nile is a very important re- uh, river in Egypt. It's, it's really the source of all their strength. It's a source of all their power. They believe there was a God over the Nile. Um, they didn't get the rains to feed their crops. Um, rains from distant lands fled down the Nile River. And the Nile was irrigated to, um, to, to uh, provide sustenance and irrigation for their crops. Okay, so they really believed that their, all of their strength came from the Nile. Okay? So Pharaoh, who's aware of the power of the Nile, thinks there's a God above the Nile. He has this dream about the Nile River. Now, Pharaohs themselves, it's a polytheistic culture. They believed in many different gods. And Pharaohs themselves were considered to be gods. And they believed, since they were gods, that other gods could communicate to them through their dreams. Therefore, the dreams of Pharaoh were really, really important. All right? He's waking up uh, every morning. If he has a dream, he's going to send his magician. He's going to send out for his astrologers. He's going to send all these people, and they're going to interpret dreams. The dreams of Pharaoh 
were pretty important. They, they were thought to have an extreme significance. Now let's walk through this. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass. Okay, cool. We got some fat cows. They're grazing in the Nile. That's what usually happened. They would walk in the reeds of the Nile along the edge of the banks of the Nile. And they would feed there. And they would feed on the reeds. Okay? Dream seems pretty normal. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them. Okay, now we got some creepy looking cows. Some gaunt looking cows. We got cows coming up. Their ribs are showing. Their cheeks are sunken. Some freaky looking cows, right? Well, what's going to happen here? It stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile River. Okay, they're standing by the fat cows. And the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. Okay, that's a freaky dream. All right, we're having dreams of zombie cows, right? Little skinny, freaky, gaunt looking cows are eating up the plump cows. Pharaoh wakes up. He's a little shocked. Okay, what's going on? We have zombie cows. I'm dreaming of zombie cows, right? And then he has another dream and the same exact thing happens with, with heads of, of, of wheat, right? And, and he wakes up and he's troubled. Let's, let's go to uh, verse eight. So in the morning... His spirit was troubled. Actually, the Hebrew there says his spirit pounded. His spirit pounded. So Pharaoh wakes up freaking out. Pharaoh wakes up. You can think of your heart pounding, your head pounding. The the Hebrew here says he wakes up and his spirit is pounding. Pharaoh wakes up and he knows I've been given a dream by God. Now, he's not converted here. He doesn't believe in, like we do, that there's only one God that rules over all things, over all universes, over all kingdoms, over all planets and galaxies. There's only one God that rules over them. He was still polytheistic. But he thinks, hey, a God has communicated to me, and his spirit, he wakes up, is pounding, right? There's significance to this dream. I don't know what it's about, but I know something important is going on. Now, this is, honestly, you would wake up probably to a little disturbing, right? You're supposedly a God. You're having zombie cow dreams, right? And then in the morning, you, you, you call people together and nobody knows what the heck it means. Look, he says, he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. See, he calls all the wizards of Hogwarts to come out and nobody can provide a proper interpretation to him. Right? He, he gets his palm read. He talks to everybody. They're probably, now they're, they're giving him plenty of inter- interpretations, but none of them solves uh, the pounding of his spirit. Oh, seven children will be born to you, seven ugly, seven good, you know, all these different crazy dreams that are coming to him, right? But, but he knows, no, my spirit is still troubled. Something's still not right here. Look at verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Oh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and he put me in the chief baker in custody and in the end, in the captain of the house of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I. So he's remembering his dream. Oh, 
Yeah, two years ago, Pharaoh, when you threw me in jail, and uh, I had this really weird dream, and this guy, this Hebrew, his name was Joseph, he interpreted that dream, and I told him I wouldn't forget him, but I forgot him. Oh, like he, the light bulb comes on, Pharaoh has a wicked dream, nobody can interpret it, light bulb comes on for this chief servant. Look at verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. All right, now think about this guy. We don't really know how long. He's been in slavery for 13 years. We don't know how long he's been in prison. At at the bare minimum, he's been in there three or four years, right? Hebrews didn't shave. Obviously, you didn't get toiletries when you're in the dungeon, right? So we've got this Hebrew who's got a long, wicked beard, right? He's dirty. He's got filthy clothes on. He's in the pit, right? He's in the dungeon, and Pharaoh says, oh, okay, this guy interpreted your dream. Okay, go get him because this dream that I had really freaks me out. I don't know what's going on. I know there's significance to it, but I don't know what it is. Go get your boy, Joseph. Verse 14. Called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and he changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. So he really gets Egyptianized here. Right? Hebrews uh, grew facial hair. They grew long beards. But Egypt was one of the only nations who shaved. Have you, have you ever seen pictures of Pharaoh? Shaved head, shaved face, clean shaven. Right? So he gets Egyptianized and he puts some decent clothes on. And he comes in before Pharaoh. Now this is just nuts to me. Pharaoh, who thinks he's a god, calls for a slave calls for a guy who's been in the pit, accused of rape, and calls for him to come out because he needs some advice. Now, I want you, I want to kind of uh, contextualize this for us a little bit. Because when you start hearing Egypt and Pharaoh, like we get totally lost. So I, I want to do this. Here, here's, here's a story. A boy named Jose Right? He's born in this little small farming community outside of Mexico City, Mexico. His whole family are ranchers. Jose's father really loves him a lot more than loves his other brothers. It's a special boy. And his brothers hate him for it. But one day when Jose's 17, his brothers have have had enough of him. They've gotten sick and tired of all the special treatment. So they kidnap him and they sell him off to this local cartel in Mexico City. This cartel packs him in a U-Haul truck with 30 other Mexicans and smuggles him into the United States under the cover of darkness. Once in the States, the cartel sells him off to a rich American senator. He cleans the pool, he cuts the grass, he washes the cars But eventually, the senator's wife thinks his tractor's sexy and wants to sleep with Jose, right? Wants to sleep with Jose, and he propositions him day after day. Jose, come to bed with me. Jose, come sleep with me. Jose says no over and over. One day, though, she grabs him, and he takes off running, and he leaves behind his jacket that's got his name on the chest, Right? She screams and accuses Jose of trying to rape her. The senator comes in. He's furious. And he has Jose locked up. Jose spends the next 11 years locked up in prison for attempted rape. Then out of nowhere, two of the president of the United States chief of staff 
get sent to prison and they find themselves in the prison yard with this guy named Jose. And that night, these two chief of staff have these wicked dreams, right? They don't understand and they have these wicked dreams. They're talking about it in the prison yard and Jose steps up and goes, oh, don't you know that God, the God of the Bible is the one that gives interpretations to dreams? These two chief of staff said, actually, no, we didn't know that. Will you please interpret these dreams for us? And he does it. One of you guys will get exalted back to your position. One of you guys are going to get the electric chair. Three days later, exactly the same thing happens. One gets exalted, one gets killed. Jose says, hey, listen, next time you go to the president, don't forget your boy, Jose. Don't forget that I interpreted these dreams just in case you ever need, you know, a guy. Like, I'm a guy, right? I can trim hedges, I can wash cars, I can interpret dreams. Just throwing it out there, right? Now, one of them gets their prestigious position back as the president's right-hand man, but forgets all about Jose. Why? Because it's Jose. That's why. He's in a prison. I'm not in a prison anymore. Yeah, the guy interpreted a dream. He did some stuff for me, but big deal. He's an illegal immigrant. He's in prison. He probably did all kind of stuff. No big deal. Jose spends then another two whole years in prison until the president himself has a wicked dream that he just can't shake. This is when the president's chief of staff has this, uh, oh, oh, aha moment, right? Jose back in the prison. He tells the president and then the president of the United States of America sends for Jose. Now, can you feel the context of this story? Can you imagine this guy who's been in prison for 13 years, an illegal immigrant, a person brought in from outside of the country. Can you imagine this ex-con standing before the president and Obama going, okay, I really need some advice here. Can you imagine this? It's, it's, it's awkward, right? It's out of the norm. It's surprising. It's miraculous. A nobody, a Mexican immigrant who has been a slave for 13 years, an ex-con who was accused of rape of all things with no money, no prestige, no power. This nobody is now standing before the most powerful man on the planet. The most powerful man on the planet is beseeching advice from a foreign ex-con. Listen to this. Joseph served a big God. I heard a story one time of this theologian who taught in a seminary. I think it was Princeton Seminary. And he would occasionally go and listen to his students preach. And he came and he listened to this student preach. And he came up after him and he said, phenomenal sermon. I loved it. It was great. The, the student was on fire. The student had a big picture of God. A big, he, he saw God as all glorious and all the world was about God and not about human beings. It was about God and his glory. And he walked up and he shook his hand. He said, son, I'm thankful for you. I'm, I, I can see God's hand of blessing is on you. I know you're going to have a fruitful ministry because you're a big godder. And the student said, what? He goes, yeah, I'll, I'll never come hear you again. I'm, I'm really busy. I come and listen to my students once. And I always say this, are they a big godder or are they a little godder? That was his term. 
And I know those with those big godders, they're going to be successful. God's going to bless their ministry. God's going to bless their life because they have this all-encompassing vision of the Almighty God. That God is bigger than all problems. God is bigger than all situations. God is in authority and he's ruling all things for their good and they're aware of that. And then there's these men who preach rules made by men and they treat God like he's this little God that, that oh, my problems are so overwhelming. And God, you know, he can't really do miracles today and he can't really change lives today. And I'm going to give you a few rules so you can go out and be better people and teach your kids some morality and, and, and get really caught up and, 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 you know, whatever it is. Those are little godders. These are big godders. He said, I could tell you're a big godder. I'll never be back to you preach, but blessings on you. Joseph is a big godder. Joseph has a God who's big. This blows me away. Big enough to pluck him out of obscurity, place him in a prison, exalt him when he needs to be exalted and get this nobody in front of the most powerful man on the planet. Do you believe that? Are you a little godder? Are you a big godder? Do you, are you very aware that God has the power, the authority, all means necessary to get you exactly where he wants you to be? It's thrilling when you believe this. It's soul satisfying when you understand it. It gives you a peace and a confidence that passes all understanding, all natural understanding. When you know your God is looking out for you. And this God is not held back by the plans of men or the plans of kings. So Joseph has this big view of God. And look, look what he does. Pharaoh, verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. This is meant to, in the Hebrew, this is a one word quick retort. Pharaoh says this, he exalts Joseph. He goes, I've heard you are the man. I heard you got this special talent. You went to school for dream interpretation. You've got a doctorate in dream interpretation. Brother, we need a guy like you on our team. Your dreams come to I want to know. I want you by my side. And right away, like in the middle of getting puffed up, you are the man, a PhD in dream, not me. That's what it's meant to do. In the Hebrew, he jumps in. He interrupts. It's a one-word answer. He says, not me. God gives dreams. God gives the interpretations of the dreams. It's not me. It's God. We saw this last week. Joseph has got this built-in God reflex. He gives the credit not to himself, but immediately to God. And then God graciously gives Joseph this interpretation. God, verse 17, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, he's going to go through the entire dream. And then look at verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. He steps right up to the plate. He's not afraid. This is bold and courageous leadership. Joseph steps in. He says this, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that come up after them are seven years and the seven empty years blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. So this is what he does. 
Joseph said, Joseph interprets the dream. God, through his spirit, gives the interpretation to Joseph. And he says, your dream means this. Seven good years are coming to the land. Super prosperous, super bountiful. Harvests are going to be plenty. But then you're going to have seven years of, of everything is going to be absolutely bleak. Seven years of drought and famine. This is the interpretation. The two dreams are one. Verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. See, in the scriptures, when things are doubled, oftentimes you hear Jesus saying, verily, verily, or truly, truly. Anytime something's doubled in the scriptures, it's meant to cause us to focus. It's like kind of like saying, wake up, look here, look here, look here. And these dreams that were doubled are meant to show us that something is really important and we should give our full intention, attention here. Pharaoh's dreams are two dreams, but they have a singular meaning. If you think back, it's interesting that the story of Joseph starts off with him having two dreams. Then last week we saw him interpret two dreams. And now this week we see Pharaoh have two two dreams that need to be interpreted. This is all meant to show us that it is God who's giving these dreams. And it's not a result of bad pizza or too much caffeine. Right? Pharaoh ate some bad weeds or something and woke up with some crazy trippy zombie cow dreams, right? Then Joseph, this is what I like. Then Joseph goes beyond just the interpretation of dreams. He takes a huge step of faith here and he actually tells Pharaoh what he should do. Now listen, this this should shock us. Jose standing before the president. He interprets the dream and then he says, well, Not to overstep my bounds any, but since I'm here, I'm in the Oval Office and you're right there and I just interpreted your dreams. Let me tell you what you should do. Let me write the policy for you. Oh, do you need some help? Okay, here you go. And this 30-year-old man steps in to now write foreign policy, right, or domestic policy for the President of the United States. This This should shock us. This is what Young people, this is what a leader does. This is bold and courageous leadership. He described for him the problem and then he prescribes for him a wise solution. See, young people, it's easy to see what's wrong. It's easy to criticize but it's difficult and it takes wisdom from God to know how to fix it. See, anyone can criticize, but it takes wisdom to lead. Anyone can criticize leadership or criticize a church or criticize a missional community or criticize their boss. But men and women of faith step up in wisdom and they enter into the problem and they, and they seek to make it better. They provide solutions, not just questions, not just criticize, but they provide solutions. And that's what Joseph does here. And here's the principle that we're about to see. Pharaoh recognizes that it's a good plan. Pharaoh looks and goes, oh, okay, that's actually good policy. We will do that. See, young people, if you want a spot at the table, 
If you want to be involved in leadership, if, if you want to be the guy or the gal someday that's running the company, that's, that's making the decisions, that's shaping policy in the city or in your business, if you want to be the partner, if you want to, be the, if you want a seat at the table, you can't just criticize and tear down and, and point at all the holes in everybody else's problems. Right? You've got to be a person that can bring some solutions, that can find some solutions to the problems that humanity is facing. You've got, if you want an opportunity to, to eventually do something significant, if you want to make an impact on this city or your generation, identify a problem and then get to work fixing it. And then begin to ask God, pray, God, I see this problem, I see this issue, I see where the church is weak or this mission or community is weak or my, my boss and the business is struggling or the community is hurting. I can see this problem. Like God gives us that vision. God gives us in the hearts of his people to see a need. And then we have to step into that need to meet that need, to fill that need. That's how God changes cities. That's how God shapes nations. He doesn't, if, look at this story. Pharaoh's not doing this. Presidents don't change nations. Give me a break. We should know that by now. The, the citizens, God and God over and above all, directs all things. That we can be the ones that make the difference. We can be the ones that make changes through God's sovereign and gracious ministry through us. See, and then look at verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Now listen, young people, I get so sick and tired of us walking around and complaining about the man. Complaining about leadership, complaining about, you know, that old guy that's running the business doesn't know what he's doing. That guy above me or that gal above me doesn't know what they're doing. Everybody's complaining about government. Everybody's complaining about the leadership. Listen, shut up and lead. Stop complaining. Step up. God's gifted you. You can see the problem. Now fill it. Meet it. And here's the principle. Pharaoh looked and go, oh, that's a great plan. Do it. Come up with a plan, young people. Don't just criticize and complain. Come up with a plan and present that plan to your boss. Present that plan to the government. Present that plan to the city. Present that plan to your mission or community leader. Present that plan. And guess what? If it's a good plan, it might not be. You're young. It might not be, right? Own that, that's okay. But if it's a good plan, it gets recognized as a good plan many times, right? This is a, le- this is a leadership lesson for us, young people, for any of us, actually. So, and then what does Joseph do right away? He's got the God reflex. Hey, it's not me. It's been God this whole time. It's been God. And because, I love this part right here. Because Joseph has gotten so used to this reflexive giving God the glory. He's a big godder. He's not a little godder. He doesn't take credit for it. He's been so used to this reflex of giving God all the glory for all of his success that Pharaoh goes, wow, the spirit of God is in this guy. Pharaoh does, no, Pharaoh's been taught by Joseph. When Pharaoh called him, he said, you're a, I heard you're a stud. You got a PhD in dream interpretation. And Joseph said, no, 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 not me. God, God gives dreams. God gives the interpretations. And now Pharaoh goes, oh, okay, I can roll with this. This guy's been given wisdom by God. This guy is filled with the spirit of God. So now all of his successes have ricocheted, have reflected up to give glory and praise to God. 
It's phenomenal. This is how our service and our leadership and how, we, how we're good employees, this is how we can bring God glory in the everyday of our life. And now this is the turn of events for Joseph. His whole life is about to change in this moment. God has been, over the past few weeks we've seen this, God has been grooming Joseph for leadership. He's been tempering him in the crucible of suffering and teaching him patience and humility. And now we see that Joseph has actually learned the lesson. He's come out of the fire burning white hot for God's glory. He doesn't come out going, finally, I've been in the freaking dungeon 13 years and somebody recognized I'm the dream dude. You know, he doesn't walk out going, I knew I've had all these talents. Finally, somebody discovered me. Thank you, Egyptian idol, for finding Pharaoh or finding Joseph, right? He doesn't walk out with a swagger. He walks out in humility. He walks out a changed man. He's no longer the young fool that he was when he was telling his brothers the dreams of his childhood. He's been sharpened. He's been honed. He's been humbled. He's learned patience. What a man Joseph has become. Listen to me. What a man God has made. He doesn't go to school for it. He doesn't read a book about it. God takes him and puts him in prison and forms him into the man, hardens his character, sharpens him, then says, okay, now you're the guy. Now you can do the role. Now that you have the character, now I can put you in the spot. John Wooden often said that talent can get a person to the top, but it takes character to keep him there. See, Joseph, he always had the talent. But now he's got the character to sustain the position. He's got the shoulders that are broad enough to carry the weight of responsibility of becoming the prime minister of the greatest nation on the planet, Egypt. And this is oftentimes what we're going to see here. Theologians oftentimes call this a redemption and lift principle. The redemption and lift principle. Redemption and lift is a term that describes the upward mobility of those whose lives are bettered in every way as a direct result of their new birth, of becoming followers of Jesus Christ. Not only spiritually, but also socially and oftentimes economically. It's different from the prosperity gospel that says that God wants everyone to be rich or that God promises healing in this life to all of his followers. The redemption and lift principle is really just a principle that says when a person gets born again by the spirit of God, when they believe in Jesus Christ to be their savior and the Lord of their life and they repent of their sins and they turn to Christ, that God causes them to be born again and then their whole life begins to change and people begin to notice. Listen, redemption, what God does in a person, and then lift what happens as a result of their redemption. See, a man, because of his redemption, a man becomes more truthful. He becomes more dedicated. He becomes uh, more hardworking because he now recognizes that, wow, look what Christ has done for me. Jesus Christ, when I, was a, when I was lazy and I was in my sin and I was an enemy, Jesus Christ came and rescued me and died and paid my price. So now he looks to Jesus and that increases his work ethic. Because now he realizes he gets to work 
filled with the Spirit of God. He gets to work for God. That he's a missionary for God. And his paycheck just gets rerouted through John Deere, Alcoa, whoever it is. Redemption and lift. See, a guy, because of his redemption, he's more studious now. He lives his life as a lifelong learner, as a disciple of Jesus. And these new traits that he's got. See, I never read a book. Literally, until I was 17 years old, I never read a book. Unless you count like, you know, Dr. Seuss or something. Right? And then when I became a Christian, when God saved me and regenerated my heart, out of nowhere, I wanted to learn. Out of nowhere, I cared about school. My passion for wrestling decreased. And my passion for school increased and education increased. I became a voracious reader. Why? Redemption did this in me, caused me to be more studious. And these traits, see what typically happens is when we take on these good traits of our Savior because of our redemption, our station or our status in life typically oftentimes begins to rise. We make more money. Why? Because bosses want Honest men that can work hard or women that can work hard. They want people who are lifelong learners who know how to to adapt to leadership situations. They want people who know how to be sensitive to others' needs. And our redemption does all of this in us. Now, it's not universal, right? Oftentimes, God redeems us and then sends us to the lowest. He often redeems us and then sends us to be on mission to the weakest of the weak. So it doesn't always flow that our income naturally rises with our redemption. But oftentimes we see this redemption and lift principle that Christians become entrepreneurs who see a need and fill it because of the great work of redemption that's taken place in their heart. So this is called the redemption and lift principle. Now I I want you to think about this too. Once God saves us, once God redeems us, these men, oftentimes they begin to give 10% of their income to God and live responsibly within their means on the rest. This makes them good stewards of their resources. And God loves to give seed or give more seed to those who are going to spread it liberally. And if you can manage what you've been given well, you're giving 10% back to the church. And then you're living on the 90%. God often wants to give you more so you can manage more of it. This is a redemption and lift principle. It's phenomenal how God does it. Verse, uh, look at verse 38 and 39. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regard the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Do you see this? Redemption, what God has done in the dark, what God has done in the pit, has now prepared Joseph to be exalted to the palace. Listen, God, does n- God is not exalting a fool. God is not exalting a young man who still plays eight hours of video games, who takes his paycheck and he go blows it on candy and video games and movies and $200 shoes. Right? Joseph is a man who's learned how to suffer. He's learned to be a man of character. He's learned to be a man of depth. And God is exalting this type of man. Man, this women, this is the type of people we need to be. Because of God's great work of redemption. Because of what he's done in us. 
I want you to flip to Colossians 4. I want you to see something here. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. This is what Paul says to the church in Colossae. When you're there, say there. Okay. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to respond to answer each person. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's read that one more time. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. That means people that are outside the community of faith, outside the church, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Look at this. So that you may know how to answer each person. Answer each person. This text assumes that people are asking us questions. Why would people ask us questions? We get to see this, a glimpse of this inside the life of Joseph. Pharaoh how are you doing this? He's given all the credit to God. Live this life in front of unbelievers, in front of outsiders that causes people to ask questions. In first Peter, it says that live exemplary lives. Let your conduct among unbelievers, right? Let it be done in such a way that people look at you and they ask questions about your lifestyle. What does that mean? It means our marriages, our money, our parenting, our community involvement, our homes, our service, our sacrifice, all done with humility, with this God reflex, giving God all the glory, should cause our neighbors to ask some serious questions. Sacred City, the people of the Quad Cities are watching our life. Our city is looking at you to see if following Jesus really means anything. Are you, ask yourself this, are you displaying to them a life surrendered to Jesus? A life that we say demands a gospel explanation. Why do you live that way? Are your neighbors looking at your life or your coworkers or your boss? Are they looking in at your life? The redemption that has taken place. Has it lifted your life to a level where people are looking in and they're saying, why do you live the way that you live? Why are there so many people at your house all the time? Why do you work so hard and treat your foolish boss with such... A deep respect. Why do you serve your neighbors like you do? Why do you volunteer and serve your city? Why do you talk about Jesus so much? Do people look in and see that? Now, I know right now we're getting really nervous. We're feeling guilty, maybe a little ashamed, right? That's the weight that's coming on us right now. And I'm going to let you know that is good. That is good. Don't run from that. Don't try to excuse that away. Or, well, I'm a lot better than blah, 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 blah. Well, I do a lot more than blah, blah, blah. Listen, the city is watching us. I'm just going to say this. Are we legit? Is our faith really legit? 
If it hasn't changed your life, it's not legit. I'm sorry. If it hasn't created in you this desire to sacrifice your privileges for your neighbor, your faith is not legit. If you're still spending your money like you did before you came to Christ, your faith isn't reaching your wallet. And if it's legit, it will. Right? That's where we know where our heart's at, where we're spending our money. Right? Why do you think Scripture wants us to give 10% back to God? Number one, you've got to be a big godder. You've got to understand that God's in control of all things. God owns 100% of your wealth. He owns 100% of all things on the earth. And giving 10% is just honoring God and just giving him glory. Just saying, hey, you gave me 100%, I'm going to give 10% back to you. And I know I can live better off a of 90% in obedience to you than I can off a 100 in a disobedience. Is it difficult? Heck yes, it's difficult. God keeps, and everybody says, well, when I make more money, I promise you, making more money makes tithing more difficult. Okay? God, in his grace, allowed my dad to teach me tithing. I wasn't even a believer yet. I wasn't even a believer. And God, when I, when, when I got my first job, dad, my dad sat me down and said, here's how we do it, son. 10% goes to God right away. As soon as you get your paycheck. But dad, I got gas and I got a girlfriend and I want to get that new cologne. And I... 10% goes to God right away. You want to rob God? You want to steal from God? You want me to show you scripture? Thief? I'm like, oh, okay. Like, I'm not even a believer yet. And I'm like, I'll give God 10%. All right. I'm giving, so when I, I was detasseling, right? I was detasseling, I'm making money. I start tithing and listen, I'm not trying to brag at all. God has been so gracious to me that all my, ever since I've started making money, my wife, including in our marriage, we've always been givers. We've always been tithers. We've always lived on 90%. Even when we got moved to Omaha, we were making, we were, I mean, we were broke as a joke in Omaha and God has never had us go without and he's always blessed us. And then one time I sold this property and I got a big chunk of money and I've been tithing my whole life. And all of a sudden I was like, Ooh, that's a lot of money. That's a big tithe check this time. And it, it was way more difficult to write that check with extra zeros at the end <laughs> than it was early on when I'm getting a hundred dollars a week. But God is gracious. Do you serve a big God or do you serve a little God that can meet all your needs? See, the city is watching. One of my favorite scriptures in all the Bibles in Acts 14 or Acts 4, 13. And it says this, they heard the apostles preach. And this is what it says. They recognized them as ordinary, uneducated men. But they knew they had been with Jesus. These guys get up and preach and they go, these guys are dumb. That's a fisherman. What the, how does he, how's he doing that? That guy's been with Jesus. Listen, that's what it takes people. That's what we want to fill this city with. Fill this city. I don't want, I don't care how many people come into our gathering on Sunday morning. I'm going to spread people all across the city that bump into unbelievers and unbelievers goes, that guy's a moron, but I think he's been with Jesus. I don't understand this guy at all. I don't understand why she's doing that. I think, I think it's really stupid. But I can tell there's something different about this person. And then as you develop this God reflex, when somebody goes, why are you parenting that way? Or why are you giving? Or why are you serving? We don't, you don't go, well, you know, 
I'm just a servant. I serve people. Really, I'm a lot better than you. That's why. You don't take the glory to yourself. Why do I serve? Because Jesus Christ has served me. Because once I was far from God, I was wandering and I was lost and I was dead in my sin. And Jesus Christ found me when I was broken and I was a sinner and he saved me. And now I'm overwhelmed. What do you mean? Why do I serve? How can I not serve? I've been served by the God of the universe. How he Jesus laid his life down for a ransom for me. How can I not lay down my life for others? Can I ask you, are you living a life that demands a gospel explanation? The only reason I live this way is because Jesus served me. Look at verse 42. I'm sorry. Go back to Genesis 41, verse 42. Or 50, I'm sorry, where am I at? Yeah, verse 42. Uh, then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain. It's actually not a chain. It's actually a collar. If you've ever seen the pictures of um, Pharaoh, they have that gold collar that comes up and goes across his chest. He puts it on Joseph. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Look at this. Can you see what's happened here? In one moment, he goes from a bearded, dirty, broken prisoner to a clean, new clothes. Got the signet ring. What's the signet ring? Pharaoh had a special ring that he would mark with his stamp of approval on anything. So if anything was going to be done, it was like a signal of power. He put that ring on Joseph himself. He exalted. Joseph had been humbled, and now he's exalted him to the highest position, second only to Pharaoh himself. Christian. Actually, everybody in this room, unchristian, Christian. I want you to listen to this. This is the calling This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is what it means for God to adopt us into his family. We're broken. We're in the dungeon of our own sin. Scripture goes as far as says we're dead in our own sin, that we've all rebelled against God and we're destined for one place and that's hell. And in one moment, in one moment when Christ is on the cross and he's forgive them and he dies and he's resurrected, in that moment, God's sealed for all eternity. All redemption is accomplished in that moment. And then when we hear the proclamation of the gospel, Maybe we're in a small group, maybe we're in a fight club, maybe somebody, somebody, our neighbor shared the gospel, maybe it was your parent, maybe it was me this morning. When we hear the gospel, this actually takes place. You were in prison, and when you hear the gospel and you place your faith and you turn from your sin, you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are exalted. You are lifted up. The ring of sonship is placed on your hand. New clothes are put on your body. It's called the robe of righteousness. Jesus' perfect record is now yours to wear. That now I stand before God, not as a broken slave, not as someone who's dirty and disgusting, but one who's been cleansed, the one who's been clothed by God himself. It's phenomenal privilege. And listen, it's, it's so like, there's this principle, it's like kind of happened, but it hasn't happened. Right? There's, it's, it's here, but it's not yet. We don't feel that. We don't feel like we walk around like kings or king's kids. We don't feel clothed like that. But the Bible tells us a day is coming when we will. 
When Christ comes back and he consummates his kingdom, when Jesus Christ comes back and the dead in Christ rise, or when we die and we go and meet him, then we'll be kings. Then we'll be exalted. Then we'll be able to stand around the throne and worship God in all his glory. Then we'll feel clothed in his glory and clothed in his righteousness. But it's going to take place. It's going to happen. Amazing. In one swift move, he goes from prisoner to the prime minister of Egypt. In our redemption, in our regeneration, in our salvation, in one swift move, we go from sinner to sinner saved by grace. We go from slave to son or daughter. It's amazing work of the gospel. And then I want you to look in verse 52 as we begin to close here. I know it's long. Actually, verse 51. Joseph goes on. Uh, The the seven years of plenty happened. Joseph goes on to, to get married. In verse 51, Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second son he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Verse 51, God has made me forget all my hardships. In the kingdom of God, our suffering has this power of working backward and making heaven and the new creation even sweeter. C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce that what mortals misunderstand... They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss could ever make up for this, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Christian, what you're going through now, the difficulty, the struggle, the pain, the heartache, what you're going through now, once we attain glory, once we attain new creation, it will work back to make heaven even sweeter. The suffering we go through will make it even sweeter. We see that in Joseph. He says, God has blessed me now. I'm the prime minister of Egypt and I've forgotten all my suffering. Has he forgotten it? No. But what's he mean? God's made up for it. I see the plan. God's su- the suffering has made me into this man. And then look what he says in f- verse 52. For God has made me fruitful in my affliction. That's interesting language. Jesus used that language in John 15, 1 through 5, where he says that I'm the vine and my father is the vine dresser. He says that God does two things to, to branches. Uh, one, he cuts off branches that don't produce fruit. Hear me. He cuts off branches that don't produce fruit and he throws them in the fire to be burned. Sweet Jesus. That's what he does to unfruitful branches. That's people who don't produce fruit. Cuts them off and throw Throws them away to be burned. But secondly, God prunes branches that do bear fruit. Now that doesn't sound very promising. Okay, if you're fruitful, I'll prune you. Oh, thanks for that. Listen, about two years ago, I came out. I, I, I get up pretty early and I go outside and... And uh, read my Bible and drink my coffee. And I got up one morning and an arborist or whatever, a guy who prunes trees, 
had came by my neighbor's apple tree. Okay. This apple tree was really round. It was beautiful looking tree. I came out this morning and all of the limbs like from the bottom up were like completely cut off. And now the tree was like a half circle. It was like cut across the straight up. I mean, it was just, I mean, he, he went to town on the thing. Right? I, I looked at that poor tree that morning. I, had, I don't know what's going on. I look at it. I'm like, what the heck has happened to this tree? It looked like a junior high kid was given a chainsaw and 10 bucks. I thought to myself, what a waste. Half the tree is gone. But the vine dresser, see the arborist, he knew that there, was, there wasn't one wrong cut done to this tree. And that every stroke that was against the tree was there to protect it and actually to develop it. Not to destroy its life, but to make it more fruitful. Like, I'm looking at this tree. It looks like somebody got a horrible haircut. Right? It's a lot, it just looks all funky. But the vine dresser, the arborist, looks at this thing and he knows this branch has to go. This one has to go. This one has to go. This one has to go. Now, this is kind of scary because, see, this is a principle that really runs through everything. Listen to me. You give gold to a refiner, what does he do? He puts it through the furnace. He purifies it. You give an athlete to a coach, and what does the coach do? The coach says, one more lap. And the kid says, yeah, you hate me. I hate this coach. Oh, my gosh. I grew up at North Scott. We have a certain type of work ethic at North Scott. I'm just going to throw it out there. I became a wrestling coach at Downport Central. Not the same work ethic, inner city, school versus out there, North Scott. I would come into practice, and every single one of my wrestlers, there's some of them are in this room right here. They can testify to this. They look at me. I hate this guy. He's trying to kill us. Every day he's trying to kill us. I hate this guy. I wish he'd do this practice. Why? You give an athlete to a coach, and they make him suffer. So what we do as coaches, right? We say, one more lap. Keep going. One more time around the track. The guy says, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. And then when they stand on the podium and get their hand raised, they say, thank I like to take my coach out there. <laughs> See, you feel like you're dying. Are you dying? No. Your coach has probably told you that. You're not going to die. I'm going to faint. You're not going to faint. Right? You don't need water. Water's for women. Get going. Listen, you give a child to a parent, what does a parent do? They discipline them. That means when a child lies, what do you say? You say, hey, kid, you lied. Right? You lied, and if you grow up lying, you're going to have a terrible life. Your life is not going to go well for you. God, won't, God doesn't bless liars. Your boss won't respect liars. Your friends won't like liars. Your life will go bad for you if you continue to lie. So now, because you lied, you're grounded. You can't go see your friends, right? You can't hang out tonight. You're grounded. You can't do it. What does the kid say? Oh, thank you, wise father. I know you're shaping my soul, and I'll really need this later on in life. I thank you for your discipline. No, what does a child say? This is the end of my life. You hate me. If I can't go out with these friends on this particular instance, in this particular time, my social life will be ruined forever. I'll have no friends. You hate me. You don't have any friends. Right? That's what wise teenage children say. Right? Listen. 
the refiner is given the ore or the refiner is given the gold. The vine dresser is given the vine. The arborist is given the tree. The parent is given the child. The coach is given the athlete. And what do they do? They cut, they burn, they stretch, they wipe out, they ruin their social life. That's what we do. But why? Because you see, through caring design, under controlled conditions, for the purpose of growth, the only way to develop them is to hurt them. The only way to develop them is to hurt them. A coach hurts his athletes. Let's just say it. Not physically. Not, he doesn't take them and hurt them. You know what I mean? One more lap. Legs are screaming. Hearts beating out of his chest. You're, I'm going to die. You're not going to die. Keep going. See, when I looked out at that tree and I saw all of these cuts and all of this stuff, I'm like, what did they do? I have no idea why I have an untrained eye. I don't know what the arborist is supposed to do. But you put a tree in the hand of an arborist, he knows how to prune the thing to make it more fruitful. If Jesus Christ, this is what we have to conclude. We look at Joseph's life. We see how he did it to him. We see how he pruned him. This is what we have to conclude. If you're a Christian, the father will prune you. That means this: some of you can look at your life right now and you can see yourself bleeding at a hundred places. You can see things on the ground that he has cut off and cut away things you liked. Some might've been some missed opportunities, things that look like now they'll never come back. But listen, why don't you just assume that you don't have the proper perspective? Why don't you assume the things that look like they have been merciful, merciless attacks on you by God, things that look like God has made your life into a sense of slaughter. That's how a child feels in the hands of a parent. That's how an athlete feels in the hand of a coach. That's certainly how the vine feels in the hands of the vine dresser. And that's often how a Christian feels in the hands of his father. God, you've been rough with me. God, you've cut things away from me. God, why you take that away from me? God, why am I in the pit? God, why I'm here 13 years? God, why did that guy not remember me? You see all this stuff laying on the ground that God's been at work and he's been, you feel like he's just been haplessly just hacking stuff away. Like he's going to kill you. When I looked at the tree, I'm like, hack job, right? And that year, the tree didn't produce any fruit. I talked to the guy, he told me, yeah, this coming up year, it won't produce any fruit, but watch next year. And the following year, that, that tree was solid apples. I'm looking at it like half the tree's gone. But a guy who knows trees who knows what he's doing, knows how to treat trees. I tell you this, look at what he's done. I want you to look at what God's been doing in your life with a gospel eye. Nothing he has done to you, nothing he's taken away from you would, would not have been a loss to keep. Well, you say, why does God prune me? Well, why, does, why did the guy cut the tree? Why does the vine dresser prune the vine? Do you know why, really? Do you know the biological reason? 
to get the branches to draw on the stem in a way that it never has before. See, by cutting away all these other branches, it causes the branches that are left to really abide in the vine, to really draw its nourishment from the vine. Why has God been cutting things away from you? Why has God pulled some relationships away? Why has God feel, it feels like to you he's taking things from you? He's pruning you. So you'll draw into the vine. So you'll draw sustenance and you'll draw favor and you'll, you'll draw goodness and you'll draw joy from God himself. See, those of you today who feel like God's shears have been hard at work on you. I want you to know he knows what he's doing. Look at the life of Joseph. He knows how to make prime ministers. He knows how to take them from the pit and equip them for the palace. You're being pruned like Joseph because like Joseph, you're meant to be God's fruitful missionary. I want us to kind of think about this. God looked at the world And he says, I need a guy in Egypt. I want a missionary to that nation. I'm going to need him later. So God does all this pruning and all this work and all this backstory to develop a missionary for Egypt. The prime minister. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, that's what it says about us. Listen to this. We are his workmanship. God's been working on us, pruning us. Created in Christ Jesus, listen to this, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has made you, if you're a new creation in Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a missionary. You don't have to go to Ghana or Kenya or Manchester. You're a missionary where you are. The world is watching. The city is looking. Your neighbors are looking. Are you living like it? This is who we are. Let's walk in this way. Listen, I'm so thrilled at what God's been doing in the city and what God's been doing in our church and what God's been doing here at Sacred City. But I feel this angst in me. I'll be honest. I feel this angst that I want us to get this. I don't, I'm not telling you go out and act like missionaries. Listen, you are a missionary right now. That's why God saved you. God plucked Joseph for the prime minister. That's why he did it. God has saved you for wherever you're at right now. I don't care if you're at the hospital. I don't care where in your neighborhood, you are his guy or his gal. You are a missionary. Are we living that life that demands a gospel explanation that people looked at us and say, I don't understand it, but why? And our answer is simply, look to Jesus. That's how he served me. Look to Jesus. That's how he loved me. My life is no longer my own. My life is his. It's caught up in Christ with his. I'm going to get my rewards later in life. I'm going to get my rewards in the new creation. I pray that we would be a church 
so sent by God, so filled with the spirit that we go out in our city, living lives, not to take from the city, but to serve the city. That's our calling. I pray that we'd be that people, that God would do that work in us. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to study this word. I thank you for how, how you filled Joseph, you would fill us. How Pharaoh looked at Joseph and said, this is a man filled with the spirit of God. I ask that you would cause us to be so filled with the spirit of God. Our lives be so shaped by the gospel. That people would look at us and say, whoa, what is God doing in that person? I want to know that God and I want to see that Jesus. I want to meet that guy. I pray that you would do that in us. And you would do that for our city and for your kingdom. And this morning, Father, as we come as a family of faith to celebrate the Lord's table, I ask that you would bring uh, repentance to our hearts. If we've been living selfishly and kind of cut off, maybe we haven't been uh, giving financially like we should, or maybe we haven't been uh, serving our neighbor or being on mission with our missional community. And we've been arguing and fighting and we've been pointing out failures instead of leading through them. Maybe we're a young person and we haven't been leading like you've called us to lead. Father, I pray that you would speak to our heart this morning and let us see the grace that's only found in Jesus Christ. And we would be so overwhelmed and so caught up with what Christ has done and who Christ is for us. And that we would gladly, joyfully lay down our lives for others. Thank you for your body that was broken, Jesus. Thank you for your blood that was shed. Thank you for calling us your people, even though we fail to be good missionaries every day of our life. But Jesus, you are the ultimate missionary who left heaven and came for us. I thank you for saving us. We ask for your forgiveness. And Father, we ask that you would fill us with courage and boldness to lead well in the city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.